From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 244 for the week of January 23rd, 2014. The Disney Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata Willie, and Michael Bowling. In this segment, Michael celebrates the 20th anniversary of Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. Michael? Thank you, Tom. Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin opened in Disneyland's Toontown on January 26, 1994, a year after Mickey's Toontown area opened, and the Tokyo Disneyland version opened on April 15, 1996. Now, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was the first dark ride built at Disneyland in over a decade, and the first Disney attraction where the rider can turn the steering wheel of the ride vehicle to change direction. Now, our historical journey through this attraction begins with Disney president Ron Miller, who, against the advice of CEO Card Walker, purchased the rights to the 1981 book Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolf for $25,000, even before it was published and put into development. Miller then handed the project off to Disney production executive Mark Studevant for development, and Studevant hired two former advertising copywriters, um, Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, to work on a screenplay, and he also assigned Disney animator Daryl Von Kidders to begin roughing out character designs as well as pencil tests for the project. Now, Seaman and Price wrote 10 different drafts of the Roger Rabbit screenplay before they wrote the story we know. And in the process, the screenwriters abandoned most of Wolf's original storyline whilst retaining most of his character names as well as the book's core concept, a clever parody of the old detective novels from the 30s and 40s. And it was a twisted tale set in a film noir fantasy land, a Hollywood where humans and tunes lived and worked side by side. Now, the early 1980s were a time of turmoil for the Disney company, with falling revenue and stock prices, a hostile takeover attempt, and internal dissension. By 1984, Ron Miller was out, and Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were in charge. And many previous projects approved during the Miller era were abandoned. However, Jeffrey Katzenberg discovered the work that had been done on Roger Rabbit and resurrected the project. Eisner knew that a Roger Rabbit film would be expensive and difficult, and to minimize the financial impact of the Disney company, he made arrangements for Steven Spielberg to help with the production. Michael Eisner and Steven Spielberg had worked together on projects at Paramount Studios, and Spielberg negotiated a contract that resulted in his production company, Amblin Entertainment, getting not only major major creative control, but also 50% rights to box office receipts, licensing, merchandise, theme park attractions, and just about everything else. A joint copyright would appear on everything. Anything involving the original characters for the film, including Roger Rabbit, Jessica, Baby Herman, and more, would require mutual approval from both Amblin and Disney. And the film opened to critical and financial success. So by the time Who Framed Roger Rabbit premiered, there were licensing agreements for over 500 products, ranging from Jessica Rabbit jewelry to Roger Rabbit talking dolls and computer games. 
So the success of the film inspired Eisner to immediately increase the promotion of the character, who the public perceived as a Disney character, not connected with Amblin. So you, some of the things I'm going to talk about you may remember. Um, the original film was released in the summer of 1988, and by the fall of 1988, a costumed Roger Rabbit character was appearing at Disneyland. Roger had been included as a major character in an NBC television special saluting Mickey Mouse's 60th anniversary. Mm. A theatrical short called Tummy Trouble had been put into production. A film sequel was being discussed, and Roger was planned to become an important presence for the Disney MGM Studios. Roger Rabbit was one of the six 45-foot-tall inflatable balloon figures in Disneyland's Party Gras Parade from January to November 1990 to celebrate Disneyland's 35th birthday. I think that was one of the best parades Disneyland ever did. Did you um, see that? We love that parade. Um, Walt Disney World brought the parade to the Magic Kingdom for Walt Disney World's 20th anniversary surprise celebration in 1991, and Roger was given a new jester's hat. I remember that. Yeah, and that parade ran approximately three years. Now, Roger Rabbit was featured in several scenes of the Disneyland Fun Sing-Along Songs video, as well as Disneyland's 35th anniversary special on NBC. Roger was in the Kids in the Kingdom show in front of Cinderella Castle and was also prominently featured in the Mickey Starland stage show. Roger was the original conductor in the Spectro Magic Nighttime Parade, that debuted at Walt Disney World in 1991, but he was later replaced by the genie from Aladdin. Now, at this time, the Disney company realized that Disney MGM Studios was so hugely popular that it needed to be physically expanded. As part of the plans for the Disney decade, one idea being discussed for Disneyland was to convert the area behind Main Street USA into a Hollywood land with a section devoted to Roger Rabbit, featuring some attractions. Seems like they always have a different plan for that section behind Main Street about every 10 years. Yep. (laughs) So in May 1991, Disney officially canceled the project, claiming in a statement to the Los Angeles Times, you're going to love to the, the reason, that the primary reason was proposed construction would come at the same time as development of the proposed Westcott theme park nearby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's why we never got the Roger Rabbit Hollywood land there. <laughs> <laughs> Shock star. <laughs> now, these same Roger Rabbit elements were suggested for an expansion at the Disney MGM Studios at the same time. Located approximately where Sunset Boulevard is today near the Rock and Roller Coaster. Known as Robert, Roger Rabbit's Hollywood Land and sometimes as Maroon Studios, the fictitious animation studio where Roger works, it would have been an entire street that looked as if it belonged in Toontown with its wacky buildings based on the film. A New York Times article stated, This will be a kind of Toontown whereas in the movies only cartoon characters may live. And the street would be littered with all sorts of surprises, like boxes of TNT, a grand piano danking precariously over the street, and Roger-shaped holes in the walls, which sounds really familiar to those of us who go to Disneyland's Toontown. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, they did a lot of that with the area where you got off the tram tour. You had the dip machine into the wall. You had all kinds of gag boxes right there. So they started um, expanding that idea slightly in Disney's Hollywood Studios, which was then the Disney MGM Studios. You're absolutely right. So in this plan, now red streetcars would take guests up and down the street, stopping at the terminal bar from the film that would serve as the restaurant for the new area. The Toontown trolley attraction would have been a motion control simulator like Star Tours with some differences, including not only a screen in front, but on each side. And there would be in-cabin effects like Roger-shaped dents when the character crashed into the roof. Baby Herman's runaway baby buggy would have been a traditional Fantasyland-like dark ride. Based on the incidents in the first Roger Rabbit short, Tummy Trouble, where Roger and baby Herman have a series of misadventures in a hospital, guests would board oversized baby buggy ride vehicles and careen downstairs through hospital rooms around beds and patients and more. Now, Benny the Cab was an attraction planned for the area that did get tweaked and built as Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin at Disneyland Park. Benny was transformed into his twin cousin, Lenny. And Imagineers tried to explain the missing Benny by saying Roger was out driving him at the time, so he was unavailable. But after the financial difficulties of the Euro Disney Resort, now called Disneyland Paris, plans were dramatically cut back with only Disneyland and Tokyo Disneyland receiving any Roger Rabbit-themed attractions. On opening day at Disney MGM Studios, a costumed Roger Rabbit put his hands and footprints into a square of concrete that was placed almost directly in front of the entrance of the great movie ride. And it reads, please, Roger Rabbit, May 1st, 1989. (laughs) I used to be able to do a really good Roger Rabbit. On opening, you did pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> on opening day, guests could see, and this is what Nancy was talking about. On opening day, guests could see a huge marine, maroon studios billboard in the Echo Lake area, and props from the film were included in the backlot tram tour and in the queue mm-hmm. for the great movie ride. In 1989, Walt Disney Studios was interested in bringing the concept of Mickey's Starland and Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom out to Disneyland. So Joe Lanzara was the project lead for Disneyland's Toontown and had also worked on the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Marcello Vignali was the design lead for Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. Marcello had worked for Imagineering and Disney Animation, but he did not care for the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was disappointed to see adult humor and sexual vulgarity in the film, especially since it was marketed for children. And he said, It was a mixed message I found distracting. The movie was good enough. It didn't need to stoop to that level. So Marcello was given a VHS copy of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a television set, and a VCR. And he sat and watched the Who Framed Roger Rabbit film over and over again, scrolling forward and backwards, sketching from the television and getting familiar with every inch of Toontown. Since much of the artwork for the film was done at Amblin, he didn't have the original Toontown designs on hand. He thought it was ironic that he was working on this project when he was the one who disliked the film. But Marcello concluded that perhaps it was better he wasn't a fan of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and wasn't married to the idea of creating a replica of the film experience. 
So the design of Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was a collaborative effort. Gary Wolf originated the characters in his novel, and Joe Lanzaro did a rough storyboard for the ride. However, much of that initial storyboard changed as the attraction evolved. It was Joe Lanzaro's idea to end the ride with a portable hole. Marcello came up with the chase through Toontown's storyline for the attraction. Most at Disney, Marcello studied what worked and didn't work on Disney attractions. For instance, the storyline on Pirates of the Caribbean is much easier to follow because it's linear, but the storyline on the Haunted Mansion is almost imperceptible because it's so esoteric. So since the vehicles would be spinning, Marcello knew he wanted a linear story that would be easy to follow. So having Jessica tied up and kidnapped, like in those old film noir films, seemed a good motivator for a car chase through Toontown. And Art Verity wrote out the dialogue and humor. Andrea Favilli designed the exterior of Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. And for folks who have not taken a whirl on Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin, let's ride through the attraction together. <laughs> so hold on tight. So the queue is designed so guests can only see about a dozen people in front and behind them, which hides the size of the crowd. Now, the queue is one of the best features of the attraction and serves as the first act of the attraction with gags lifted straight out of the film and cartoon world. In entering the Toontown Cab Company, the queue winds its way through darkened Toontown streets and alleys, passing through the Ink and Paint Club's backstage areas like Jessica Rabbit's dressing room and the prop cage, then past the window of Baby Herman's apartment, and in a window on the upper floors, the shadows of the weasels in the Toontown Patrol can be seen plotting to dip the city. The queue then takes guests through the dip refinery, and in the film, dip is made up of equal parts of acetone, benzine, and turpentine, and is the only way to kill tunes. I think one of the the things I enjoy most in the queue are the license plates hanging on the walls of the queue, which have oh, code-like those. puns. You have the various Disney things or things or slogans. I was going to mention that if you hadn't, that that was one of my favorite things to do in that particular room to find all of the all of the gags and all the the um, the hidden um, hidden tweaks. Yeah, I think this I, is one of the best cues in in is. a Disney park. So, and I know the pe- fact that mm-hmm. you've Go. got so many things um, interacting with you all the way through. Right, and also there are things like, you know, the gorilla at the Ink and Paint Club, you know, comes to the door. Oh, that's right. He's so so funny and creepy at the same time, and he doesn't... I think he says about two or three different things, depending on when you you, um, come through. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. I used to freak my kids out when they were little because they have so many signs, don't knock, and I would knock, and they were... Afraid they believe that there really was a goon on the other side, and they're mom, <laughs> you can't knock on there. You and it was so funny. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great cue. Um, now exiting this area, the guests return to the cab company and approach the loading area. Now setting off in Lenny the cab, who is the twin cousin of Benny, because Roger is out uh, out driving Benny, which can be seen in the first scene of the attraction. The ride begins with stupid, greasy, and wheezy weasels dumping barrels of dip into the streets, sending Roger Rabbit and Benny spinning alongside the riders. Smarty Weasel has tied up Jessica and placed her in the trunk of his car. Now the steering wheel of the cab becomes active at this point. 
and the car can then spin around, much like Fantasyland's Mad Tea Party. And you can spin clockwise or counterclockwise, though this ride won't spin you as fast as the teacups. There's a lot of fun things to see in this ride, so try not to get so caught up in spinning that you forget to look around. And this is one of the first attractions where they had to have something 360 degrees around for you to look at. And because they, you know, like in the Haunted Mansion and the other dark rides, they directed your field of vision. And in Roger Rabbit, because you can spin, um, they can't direct your field of vision. The cars then careen into a china shop run by a bull who is trying to protect some of his goods. And upon exiting the shop, the cars travel down Spin Street, where two fire hydrants, power cables, and streetlights laugh and spin around. Next, the cars enter the Toontown powerhouse where Roger is having a shocking fight with Psycho Weasel. And passing mm. through a series of explosions, the cars sort of plummet from Toon's skyscrapers, heading closer to street level past a group of stairs where Roger promises to fix things. Now, the cabs enter the gag warehouse. You might remember in the film that was, of course, Marvin Acme's um, Acme Warehouse. And going past, you know, various jokes and gags with weasels threatening the cabs along the way. Jessica manages to free herself and clobbers her weasel captors with a mallet. And just as the dipmobile is about to dip the cabs, they narrowly escape and Roger saves the day by stretching his arm out and using a portable hole to allow vehicles to return safely to the cab company, going through a cartoon The End title card to return to the loading zone. Now, as you spin with Roger through Toontown, you will, as I said, you'll notice that Marvin Acme's Acme Warehouse in the film is called the Gag Warehouse, and the cans of dip in the opening scene of the attraction are real props from the film, and one has a dent from where Christopher Lloyd, who portrayed Judge Doom, kicked it. And I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, so, um, and did you know the attraction was originally designed to be a two-story ride? No. Yeah, if you look at the exterior of the cartoon spin, off to the left, you can see the doors of the glass company are wide enough for a ride vehicle. And that's because the ride vehicle was supposed to break out through those doors. And this was also part of that initial storyboard that Joe Lanzero created, but the two-story ride never happened. It's a good thing we'd probably be facing a rehab on it about this time. (laughs) (laughs) Really, to put safety railings up. Yep. Now, the way the project was structured, the exterior of Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was completed first. And actually, the foundations for all the Toontown buildings had to be poured, and the electrical, plumbing, and support had to be laid out before most of the interiors had been settled on, most especially the cartoon spin attraction, since the opening date was going to be a year after the opening of Toontown. And as it turns out, the ride system for the Roger Rabbit cartoon spin attraction just wasn't able to deliver. The ride vehicle was going to be a single chassis bus bar system with a three-wheeled chassis in order to bank the corners, climb the elevation, and go to the upstairs. But as it turns out, the ride vehicle wasn't able to climb the elevation. Um. Yeah, but however, Marcello was surprised to discover that they didn't lose that much square footage. Much of the footage was eaten up by the ramp going up and then down. So Marcello found that if he weaved the lower level track in a very clever way, he could recover quite a bit of the track footage. 
Marcello was able to take advantage of the high ceilings, the show design and track layout was more compact and economical, and since the attraction didn't go outside, he could continue to use blacklight. Also, since the attraction didn't have to go upstairs, they created a tandem vehicle and increased the total ride our ride capacity. So overall, the problem ended up helping to make a better attraction. Now, Imagineers frequently hide tributes or jokes within attractions, so Marcello drew a caricature of both Joe Lanzaro and himself as the jack-in-the-box clowns in the warehouse, and both mm-hmm. of them record- recorded the laughter for the clowns. The boxes for the jack-in-the-box clowns are labeled M for Marcello, or Mo, and J for Joe, so the clowns are Mo and Joe. Okay. So the original budget for Roger I'm going to say hi to Mo and Joe. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) The original budget for Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was $40 million, but the budget was later cut nearly in half due to the onset of a recession and a disappointing opening for Euro Disneyland. And the final budget for the cartoon spin ride was closer to $22 million. There are 16 audio animatronic figures in the attraction and 59 animated props. The ride is approximately three and a half minutes long. Now, the voices used in the attraction for Roger Rabbit, it was Jess Harnell. Baby Herman was Jim Cummings. The weasel was Charlie Adler. And another weasel was June Ferre. Now, strobe light effects are used in this attraction. And even if you choose not to spin the steering wheel, the cab will spin a little bit. So this ride may not be suitable for those who are extremely sensitive to motion sickness. There's no height requirement for this attraction, but it is dark, so younger guests may not like it. Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin is a fast pass attraction. This attraction does not load very quickly, and the standby wait can sometimes be an hour or more. In addition, much of the standby queue is outdoors and can get very hot. So use FastPass if you can. Um, Guests in wheelchairs or ECVs should proceed through the regular queue and then transfer to the ride vehicle. There has been one serious incident on the attraction. On September 22, 2000, a four-year-old boy named Brandon Zucker fell off one of the ride vehicles and suffered severe injuries when he was trapped underneath the vehicle and suffered cardiac arrest and brain damage, resulting in his not being able to walk nor talk. The attraction was shut down for 10 months to install new safety measures, including a door on the cab, taller sides, updated training procedures, and a sensor skirt around the bottom of the vehicle to stop it immediately if it bumps into something 8 pounds or heavier. Brandon never fully recovered from his injuries, and nine years after the accident in January 2009 at the age of 13, Brandon passed away at the Children's Hospital in Orange County, California. Now, with the popularity of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the prominence of Roger in the parks and the long lines that continue for Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin, you might be wondering, whatever happened to Roger, and why don't we see him in in the parks or in the films today? And for that answer, we have to look to Roger's theatrical shorts and the relationship between Disney and Amblin. Now, the theatrical short Tummy Trouble had been rushed into production and was released with the Disney live-action film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in June 1989. And it was credited in the industry as having significantly boosted the revenue for the film. 
almost immediately a second short titled Roller Coaster Rabbit was made, and Spielberg assumed that this short would be attached to his Amblin film Arachnophobia in 1990, especially since it was the first feature to be released by Disney's new Hollywood studios. However, Disney had invested heavily in the live-action feature Dick Tracy and felt the film needed additional help to recover its cost. Eisner insisted that since Disney was releasing both films, that the short be connected with Dick Tracy. Spielberg believed that as the co-owner of the characters, he should have a say in how they were being used and that a Roger Rabbit short should accompany one of his films. Work began on a third short, Hair in My Soup, to be released with the film The Rocketeer in 1991. Pre-production work was finished on the short when Spielberg announced he could not approve the cartoon, and he also had concerns about the script for the Roger Rabbit sequel, so he wouldn't approve it either. And Eisner realized that there would be even more trouble getting Spielberg's agreement on any future co-productions, so Eisner gave the order to stop any projects featuring Roger. So in 1992, it seemed to be the end of the career for Roger Rabbit. Disney tried to create its own version of Roger Rabbit named Bonkers D. Bobcat that it would own completely. So first... Oh, that was a horrible TV show for Disney Channel. I think... And I think people agreed with you. (laughs) Because... And, and I never saw the, it. That was during the, let's see what we could come up with to make Disney Channel more of the type of Disney Channel it was in the later 90s and early 2000s before they became the moderate age one and broke Disney Junior off and stuff like that in this last decade. So what was the target audience for Bunkers? Bunkers was kind of the after, sco- the after school, elementary school crowd, okay. I would say. Okay. Yeah, so this is So it first appeared in the Disney series Disney's Raw Tunage in the fall of 1992 and later in his own television series from 1993 to 95. Um, Bonkers was an animated bobcat who became a special police officer teamed with a human partner. However, audiences, as Nancy said, did not embrace the new character despite Mm-mm. his physical resemblance to Roger. So, in an attempt to patch things up, Disney produced a Roger Rabbit theatrical short titled Trail Mix-Up that did get Spielberg's approval and was released with the Disney Amblin co-production of Far Off Place in 1993, but it did not receive the same attention from audiences as the previous shorts. So, by mid-1993, it was clear that Roger was pretty much washed up in animation and in the Disney parks. Recently, with the new distribution agreement between Disney and Spielberg, fans have been hoping for the possibility of Roger Rabbit's return. A towering Roger Rabbit stands precariously on top of a barrel of turpentine that could instantly dissolve him in the 1980s section of Disney's Pop Century Resort, which opened in 2003. And the costumed Roger Rabbit made a brief return from March 25th through Easter Sunday, March 35th, 2013, on Main Street USA at Disneyland as part of the pre-parade festivities and to lead the guests in the bunny hop dance. He had previously made appearances during performances of Fantasmic, um, waving from the Mark Twain. So after 20 years, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin continues to be as popular as the day it opened. Marcello Vignali believes one reason for its popularity is because they designed a unique ride experience that can hold up with or without the Who Framed Roger Rabbit film. 
Joe Lanzara said the concept worked out well since Roger's closer in temperament to what Toontown is all about, which is the cartoon shorts. We aren't trying to tell the entire story of who framed Roger Rabbit, but rather highlighting its essence. I think our dark rides work best when we can take you someplace where you can't go in reality. And in my personal opinion, that is the fundamental nature of Walt's Disneyland. Excellent. All right, thank you, team. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.